No Junk Mail presents The Trading Post, Chapter 7, Day 5. At daybreak, everybody stirred at about the same time. I looked over to see Inu sitting against a pile of furs, 30-30, laying across his lap. The fog was so thick on the water that I couldn't see 25 feet away unless I looked under it. The fog seemed to float about a foot above the water. Looney waded into the lake up to his waist. He was the first to spear a fish that morning. Alex, Billy, and I were right behind him with our spears. We got five fish and brought them back to the camp where we roasted them on sticks along with strips of deer meat for breakfast. Inu was picking up more and more English as we went on. He explained to us with a little help from Philip that we were making good time, but we still had another hard day's march ahead of us. We would be going through areas where bears, wolves, and cougars prowled. He was concerned that since we were carrying raw deer meat with us, something might stalk us. Each predator presents a problem, but if we stuck together, we could hold off anything except a grizzly bear, and there weren't many of those around these parts. We pushed the logs into the water, piled furs on the makeshift raft, then plunged back into the icy water. When we got close to shore, Philip and Inu signaled us to stop and be quiet. They took the guns and waded to shore. Then they went into the woods looking for tracks, crisscrossing as they went. Finally, they came back to the raft and helped us bring it to shore. We were anxious to get out of the cold water. Cougar tracks stalking us, Philip said. We unloaded the back frames on the sandy beach, left Enu, Philip, and Daryl there with the rifle and pistol, and went back for Billy and Alex. When we had everything and everyone on shore, we took the raft apart, checked out our back frames, and put them on. Cougars, Enu said, as he pointed into the forest. He took the deer meat off his back frame and left it on the beach. Meat stay here, Philip said. Stay together. If cougar attacks, don't run. Then he pointed his spear up about 45 degree angle. Spears up. Cougar might jump from tree. We knew about cougars. He didn't have to tell us twice about them. A cougar had attacked one of the kids at the Leeser Elementary School and almost dragged him into the woods. Some of the kids ran after it, throwing stones and anything else they could find. The cougar dropped the boy and ran into the woods. The men at the project formed a hunting posse and combed the woods. They found two cougars hunting together, tracked them down and killed them. The kid was bit up bad, needed a lot of stitches, but he survived. He could have been a meal. After that, we had lots of talks at school from hunters and animal experts about cougars and bears and their ways. Cougars are excellent hunters and are at the top of the food chain. You might hear one if you accidentally go near where a lair is. They don't feel like attacking you. They kind of hiss like a cat. However, if they're hunting or stalking prey, you won't hear them at all till they pounced on the prey and knocked it down. Then it's too late. Cougars can jump and climb, sometimes attacking from the limb of a tree without a sound. When they hunt, male-female together, they're particularly deadly. 
because they'll use one to get the prey's attention a second before the other hits it from behind. They hunt everything but grizzly bears. That's another thing entirely. We knew from the different sizes of the tracks that we were being followed by a male and female. The tracks also showed us that they had spent the night where we'd gone to the lake to cross over to the island. We knew they were close by and that they'd probably see us, even though we couldn't see them. We were concerned, but we had our mission to get to the trading post and then home. Plus, we had guns. We left the remains of the deer meat in hopes that it would distract them and they'd leave us alone. We walked more briskly. No one talked, and we moved as silently as we could. We avoided anything that looked like an overhanging limb. We avoided trails because the cougars probably knew them and knew places where they could ambush us. So we had to cut through a lot of dense forest, and that slowed us down. One time we scared four deer lying in the bush. They took off, but then they met something that sent them rushing right back. Right back at us. They almost ran us over. I could have reached out and touched one of them. We just stood still, looking and listening. Enu cocked his rifle, but nothing happened. Eventually, Enu signaled to move out, changing directions almost 180 degrees. It didn't seem to bother him that we changed directions so much. He had something in his head that worked like a compass. So when we zigged and zagged, he got us back on course. We trudged for hours, and our pace slowed considerably. We were tired and hungry. We stopped at a stream and drank some water, one by one, so we could watch for danger. We didn't even take the back frames off. Then we trudged on again. One time we stopped short at Enu's signal. We waited, and soon a moose with enormous antlers came marching down a trail 30 feet to our right. He didn't know we were there and he went right past us. Moose are huge and ugly. They're taller than a draft horse, and it seems like their legs are way too long for their bodies. We finally stopped for a break at a small clearing with a slight hill. We huddled in a circle with our backs to each other so we could see if anything was coming at us. We kept our spears by our sides. Billy and Daryl and Eric's dozed off for a short nap. Philip stayed on watch with a pistol in his hand. Even though we were tired and hungry, we're not about to take the time to go off looking for food, because it was too risky. After maybe an hour or so, we were off again. We kept on going and going. Fear kept us motivated to keep moving. Once we stopped at a creek and found a few crawdads, we ate them raw as we trudged on. We didn't have time to go down the creek looking for more. The sun was setting, and the shadows were creeping around us. We kept plodding on. We didn't say anything, but we were scared of what might happen when it got dark. I was scared for sure, and gauged by the size of Billy's eyes, he was too. Soon we were making noise as we walked, because we could hardly see where we were going, and we kept bumping into each other. Enu said, Lake close. Soon after he said that, we smelled the lake, which gave us a new spurt of energy. We trudged through the underbrush for a few more minutes, and then we could see the lake through the trees. Finally, we were standing on the shore of a large, very large lake. 
we had reached Lake Merwin. It's true. You can smell a lake before you can see it or hear it. When you do hear it, what you hear are the waves coming ashore, especially when there's a little wind. When we got to the edge of the woods and looked up to the sky, there was no light, no moon or stars, but we could make out the waves coming ashore about 50 feet away. We dropped the back frames and ran to the water's edge. We didn't wade in because we knew how cold it would be. We hadn't made it here, but now what? We were out of the forest and on the beach where we could see to our left for a hundred feet or so. At that point, the trees went right up to the water's edge. On our right, there was a longer stretch of beach, but we couldn't make out how far it went. It was getting darker by the minute, and fog was forming over the water. We stood at the lake's edge, and a cool breeze was blowing on us from across the lake. Philip and Enu were talking again while we looked around. Then Philip called us over. He had a plan for our camp on the lake shore. If we were going to have a problem in the night, it was going to come out of the woods. Therefore, we'd make a camp with our backs towards the lake. We'd be about as close as you could get to the water without being in it. We piled up the furs behind us for a windbreak and thrust our spears into the sand every three feet in a semicircle in front of us to form a barrier. The points of the spears were aimed out and up at about 45 degrees. We weren't going to have a fire this night, because there was hardly any driftwood nearby, and it'd be too risky going into the woods and searching for wood this late. Philip also said Looney and Billy would have first watch and they'd have to keep each other awake. Billy had the pistol. Philip told Looney, Hear or see anything move, shoot, don't wait. We all shook our heads. No, we wouldn't wait. Waiting to see what it was might mean being attacked by a cougar. Looney and Billy took their position in front of us, but behind the spears. We sat on the shore, our backs against the firs, it was dark where we were, and even darker, if that's possible, in the woods. We believed there was danger stalking us tonight. We chatted for a while. Enu and Philip dozed off first. I could hear Billy and Looney whispering, and the waves swishing ashore in a peaceful, regular rhythm. As I dozed off, the waves seemed to take over in my head, and their whispering faded into sleep, till I was back home flying over the McLaughlin Project like a bird. I told you a little about the project. It was a quick-made government housing built a ways outside the eastern city of Vancouver, Washington. The project was about two miles north of the Columbia River and had over 5,000 units. The war was going on, so there were not very many materials available for housing. And what was available was low quality. For instance, there was no paint on any of the houses and no shingles on the roof, just tar paper. Some windows were boarded up because they couldn't get window glass. In those days, everything was rationed, like shoes, sugar, cream, butter, bread, gasoline, tires, cars, almost everything you wanted and a lot of what you needed. Some of the houses were made for single families, as in our section. Other sections had large two-story buildings, 
which housed four families in each building. To try to make the project look a little nicer, there was a contest to see who could spruce up their homes the best. So some people painted their houses or planted flowers. All over the country, these government projects were built as close as they could be to the important war-related factories. That's where the tanks, guns, airplanes, ships, bombs, and bullets were being made. And in our case, where ships and subs were being built and repaired. And there I was, in my dream, flying over this makeshift housing development just outside of Vancouver. I was up high, and I could see Lisa Road Elementary School and Eli Grimm's Grocery Store, which was a small house converted to a store right there by the bus stop. I could see the city dump, which was a gold mine for us kids. When we could get the bullets, we spent hours at the dump shooting rats with Billy's Remington 22 rifle. We used our bows and arrows when we couldn't get bullets, and we got pretty good with them. Other times, we just sifted through the junk looking for treasure. You learned quickly what had value, and there was always someone who gave you money or traded you something for a dump find. My first bicycle was made up of parts from the dump. It consisted of a bent frame, two different size wheels without tires, a pipe for handlebars, a bicycle chain, and a motorcycle seat. When I had it all together and it worked, it looked weird. But I didn't care, because I had a bicycle. You couldn't buy a new bicycle, because they were rationed, too. What a treasure I had. Anyway, that night I flew over the project from this place to that. I saw my house, Billy's house, and Philip and Daryl's house. I saw Alec's family in the front yard and Looney's dad. I saw the trail we always took that went to by Grimm's store and ended up at the Columbia River. I saw the bus stop where we got on the bus to go to the shipyards and where we got on the bus to go to Vancouver to school. It must have been a sunny day in my dreams because I could see everything clearly. Boom! A great explosion brought me back to reality and I sat straight up on the beach in the pitch black night. Billy yelled and then there was a long silence as everybody was listening. Inu had his hands on his rifle. After a bit, Billy and Looney chimed in at the same time. I'm not sure what they said, because they were talking over each other. The words I did catch were move and sounds. The upshot was that they thought they had seen something and shot at it, scaring the rest of us out of our sleep. Now that we were awake, we listened for anything moving. We had agreed that if we were attacked, we'd make a stand on the beach with our spears. We didn't discuss it, but I was hoping that cougars couldn't swim and come up behind us. After a while of not hearing anything unusual, just the wind in the trees and the waves on the shore, we began to breathe again and chatted a bit. Inu and Alex traded watch with Billy and Looney. We were supposed to sleep, but the most I could do was short naps. Every time I heard something new, like when Inu and Alex talked, I woke up again. Alex and Inu were talking, talking, talking just to stay awake. And we were listening, listening, listening for anything that might be out there hungry and ready to make a meal out of us. Then there was my heart problem. My heart was beating so loud 
I was sure I couldn't hear anything sneaking up on us. Thump, thump, thump it went. The time dragged by. It was taking forever for the sun to come up. Daryl and Billy stood the next watch. Finally, me and Philip took the last watch. Nobody slept well that night. After the long, long night, the sky lightened to gray in the east. The horizon changed from black to light blue. We couldn't see anything well, yet we knew the day was coming. The story continues on Chapter 8.